0: It's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary, to the sweetest girl I know. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 69. This week, I would like to thank everybody who has taken the time to leave the podcast review on iTunes. Reviews go a long way to getting the podcast more exposure, so if you're listening to this through iTunes or any other podcast provider that allows reviews, and you have a few moments, please consider leaving one. I would also like to thank new Patreon subscriber, Ben, and for past Patreon subscriber, Patrick, for all of the great discussions that we've had over the last couple weeks. He's assisted me in some research for later this year that I think are going to make for some really good episodes. The first four days of Verdun had been one of German successes, coupled by missed opportunities for even greater success. The French were battered and bruised. they had lost their front line, and the 72nd and 51st Divisions were all but destroyed. The 37th had almost completely broken, and to cap it all off, Douaumont had fallen to the Germans. All of that sounds real bad. But the 20th Corps had arrived at the front, and even though the French did not know it yet, the front was starting to stabilize, as the Germans were running out of steam. Into this situation, there would be one man who was given command over Verdun, and would forever be associated with the rest of the battle, and that man was General Henri Philippe Pétain. Soon, he would become the savior of Verdun, then the savior of France, and then the man who led France to victory. Through that process, patton would, more than any other single person on either side, become associated with Verdun. Today, we will look at how patton came to be involved with the fighting, before talking about some of the decisions that he quickly made to stabilize the situation on the front line. The first few days of fighting had not greatly concerned the leaders back at French high command. The Germans had launched attacks at Verdun before, to try and push back the defenses, and them doing it again was not a huge surprise, especially with how much the French had found out about the build-up before the battle. On the third day of fighting, Joffre did send his assistant chief of staff, Colonel Claudel, to Verdun to evaluate the situation and to send his views back to Joffre. The message that was sent by Claudel was mostly positive. In it, he stated that he believed that the French would probably stop the German attacks after the third day. Even though this message was positive, and pointed to the lines settling down very soon, on the evening of the third day, General Delango de de Cary, the commander of the army group in charge of the Verdun area, asked for permission to abandon the Wauvoir plain. The French positions on the plain were to the east of the main fighting at Verdun, and the plain represented a salient out into the German lines, which de Langle believed made it vulnerable to future German attacks even though they had not touched it so far in the fighting. When Joffre received this request to abandon the plane, he responded by saying that it was up to Delangle on whether or not that decision should be made, because as the general on the scene, you are the sole judge of the necessities of combat. In Verdun, The Lost History, John Mosier goes on to call this decision, and I quote, what may well be the single worst command decision of the Great War. Now that blows it way, way out of proportion, but it really was not a very good move by de to abandon the Beauvoir. This retreat uh, presented a couple of problems for the French, and the first was simply that it represented a retreat for the French from positions that were not even being threatened by the Germans, and in fact the Germans didn't plan on threatening them, although of course the French couldn't have known that. The Germans were able to also move their front lines forward almost 10 kilometers, which shortened the German lines around Verdun, and gave them another axis on which that they could position heavy artillery against the Verdun salient. This retreat got a lot of criticism both during and after the war, and Joffre was lucky, or perhaps he planned it all along, that de L'Engle would take most of the blame. Regardless of whether this move was a good one when it happened, or whether they shouldn't have done it at all, It was, in fact, completed at 10.30 p.m. on February the 25th. Now, this decision doesn't play heavily in most histories of Verdun. It sort of just gets passed over, maybe in a sentence, maybe a paragraph. But it was pretty important, because it represented a tightening of the Verdun salient more than maybe at any other time during the battle. During discussions at French headquarters on the night of the 24th of February, Castelnau was concerned about the situation at Verdun. His concern was that even if the French managed to stop the Germans, they were desperately short of men in the area, and so he suggested moving the entire 2nd Army to Verdun. The 2nd Army was, at that moment, out of the line and resting in Normandy, after the role that they had played in the French fall offensives, and they were commanded by none other than General Patton. On the night of the 24th, along with requesting that the 2nd Army be moved to Verdun, Castelnau also wanted to go to Verdun himself to evaluate the situation. Castelnau also requested that he be given authority to do whatever he felt necessary, no matter what, without having to check with Jaffer first. Jaffer agreed to this request, and in his memoirs says that he agreed, he, but he also advised Castelnau to only abandon the city if he thought it was absolutely necessary. Joffre, while fully aware that this step may be required if the situation began deteriorating at a faster pace, knew that it would not be a popular decision, and the politicians were already making some rumblings about how hard Verdun needed to be defended. Joffre never would order Verdun to be abandoned, of course not, which was important for him in the long summer months when pressure began to mount for him to be replaced. He could always point to the fact that he was defending Verdun. On the ground at Verdun, Hare was actually beginning preparations to abandon the city, uh, even though Joffre hadn't ordered it. He had already ordered all support troops over to the west bank, and also ordered all permanent fortifications to be rigged for demolition when the time came to abandon them. Both of these moves were made to facilitate a quick and easy move to the other bank of the river, away from the German attack and away from the city. With Castelnau on the way to Verdun, Joffre ordered Hare to stop these preparations, and to wait for Castelnau to arrive before doing any more. Early in the morning on the 25th, Castelnau arrived at de headquarters. His goal at these headquarters was to just talk about the situation, calm everybody down, and then phone ahead to Hare to reiterate the need to not voluntarily give up any more ground to the Germans. He then moved on to Verdun, where he arrived several hours later. After he arrived, he spent most of the day discussing the situation with Hare and his staff to try and determine the best course of action. After his evaluation, Castelnau made a fateful decision, and oddly enough, exactly the one Falkenhayn was hoping for. He decided that the French would stand and fight on the east bank, and they would fight for every foot of ground that they possessed. He could have ordered the city to be abandoned, and the French to retreat behind the city, into the defensive terrain on the other side of the river, but he did not. And because of that, he would set the scene for the rest of the campaign. This move was keeping with French doctrine at the time, and it also squared with de Castelnau's firm belief that the best strategy for the French was to attack, and to keep attacking, even if they found themselves temporarily pushed back. Another factor that Castelnau had to consider was if the French forces were even capable of an orderly retreat at this point. The worst thing that could possibly happen was for the retreat to turn into a disorganized and panic-driven route, and that was a real possibility at this point. Castelnau also suggested to Hare that French reinforcements, who were arriving pretty much all the time now, not be fed into the line as quickly as they had been up to this point. Waiting for larger units to arrive and organize would allow the French to counterattack and, in general, make their reinforcements more useful. The final decision that Castellum made was maybe his most impactful, although that first one's quite the doozy. One that he would telephone directly to Joffre, even. He was going to put Patan in command of all of the French troops at Verdun. This included any troops on the east and west bank and any further troops that would arrive. General Hare would be relieved of his position, because Castelnau really didn't think very highly of him, although he had been put in an impossible situation from the start, so I sort of feel for the guy. With all of these decisions made, Castelnau sent a message to Patan to prepare himself and the 2nd Army to move to Verdun, and told Hare to defend the right bank at any cost until Patan arrived. Then Castelnau, his part played in the Verdun story, departed. By 1916, Patan had a relationship with the troops under his command that was pretty much unique among all of the French army commanders. His particular leadership style and his dedication to belief that firepower was the deciding factor on the battlefield was part of this relationship. It could best be exemplified in the belief by his troops that if Patan was asking them to attack, then he saw a reason, a chance of success, and he would not just throw them away. Patan fostered this belief by frequent, often unplanned, visits to the front. He made a point of presenting medals to the troops in person, and he was known to inquire about the wounded right after the battles. These seem like common-sense things to build morale, but they were pretty unique in World War I. In Price of Glory, Alistair Horne would say about the situation that that Patan now found himself in, it was the tragic fate that because of the terms of reference to which de Castelnau had committed to him in advance this uniquely humanitarian general would be called upon to subject the men under his command to what was shortly to become the most inhuman conflict of the whole war. End quote. "And of course, Alistair Horne is referring to the fact that Castelnau had committed Patan before Patan arrived to hold the east bank and to hold every foot of it. Now, the order to report to French HQ for assignment to Verdun reached Patan while he was in Paris, and while he was visiting his mistress in a hotel. Yes, Patan was quite the ladies' man, yes, he had at least one mistress in Paris, and yes, he visited her frequently. He would find his way to headquarters early the next morning, and when he arrived, he was told to move to Verdun and that the whole of the Second Army would be following along behind him. He was given the task by Joffre to rally the troops of the fortified region of Verdun. If they are compelled to withdraw to the West Bank, prevent the enemy from crossing the Meuse River. This was before Castelnau's decision to hold the East Bank at any cost had been made and communicated. Patan would only find out about that decision when he arrived at Verdun. As Patan approached Verdun, what he saw could not have been an encouraging sight. Hordes of refugees, broken pieces of units, countless wounded all streaming out of Verdun, while convoys of reinforcements and smaller groups of replacements were trying to move in. The situation on the roads was a disaster, with the traffic sometimes barely moving for hours at a time. Patan was only able to reach Harris headquarters at 7 p.m. on the fifth day, and what he found there was a commander on the verge of a breakdown. Hare was completely unable to stand the strain of his command, and the worst part was this caused his staff to also be ineffective. Patan found that there was no solid information on simple items like corps and divisional boundaries, and there was no up-to-date map of the troops' positions, and there was no order log being kept up-to-date so that Patan could know what was happening. In this atmosphere of confusion, he officially took command at 11 p.m., Just in time for the first bit of real concrete news to arrive from the front, Aduamon had fallen. It was very clear to Patan that this would be a long road ahead of him. According to G.J. Myers, in A World Undone, The appointment of Patan put Verdun in the hands of a man who, probably more than any other in the French army, was capable of organizing an effective defense, while at the same time protecting his troops from unnecessary destruction. And the first thing Patan did was send out a message to General Bafoyer of the 20th Corps that he had taken over command and that he had complete confidence in him. He also ordered the 20th Corps to defend territory that they currently occupied. When the formal operational order was drafted and sent out later, Heyerd Weed, quote, "...the mission of the Second Army is to stop at any price the enemy effort on the Verdun front." Every time the enemy wrests a partial of terrain from us, an immediate counterattack will take place. With this order, the game was now set. The French would be defending everything and counterattack if anything was lost. They had fallen into Falkenhayn's trap, hook, line, and sinker. The only question now was would it result in the outcome that the German commander desired? After issuing his brief orders to the commanders, Patan found a chair and slept for a few hours. However, the room that he slept in was unheated, and it got very, very cold during the night, so in the morning he awoke with a high fever. After a doctor was called in and evaluated Patan, he declared that Patan was suffering from double pneumonia. This meant that he would be bedridden for over a week. Patan made it very clear to his staff that his condition should be kept a secret from everyone, and only a small number of his staff were able to meet with him, and he rarely left his room for the next stage of the battle. At the front, he trusted his chief of staff and aide-de-camp to to be his eyes and ears. They would meet with commanders and then report back to Patan. This made the opening week of his command even harder than it already was for Patan. Patan would spend most of the next several days just trying to get a good handle on the situation in front of him, and he had to rely on second-hand messages. He would write in his memoirs that at this point, quote, "...between the fords and beyond, everything was in a state of dilapidation." Trenches had collapsed, the network of barbed wire was in pieces, roads had turned into swamps, and materiel laid scattered about. End quote. Surprisingly, but perhaps also predictably, he did not think the situation was as desperate as many other did, like General Hare. First of all, patton was not being called upon to get the French to resist. The soldiers were already doing that on their own. What was required of him was instead to just try and channel that resistance into one coherent effort, and to back it up with the resources that it would have, so that it would have an even greater chance of success. Part of this process for coordinating resistance was to establish some positions and to stick to them, and this also meant that Patan was writing off everything that had already been taken, and that included Fort Duhamon, which had seen a series of counterattacks since it had fallen. He ordered the counterattacks to cease, and for the French to dig in on the other side of the fort. There were two essentials that he identified in the early days that would be the driving factor for most of his decisions. The first was to coordinate the artillery to again make it an effective force on the battlefield, and to accomplish this, he took personal command of all of it. For the first time, the French guns would start coordinating their fire in larger groups than just a battery. Pétain also altered their orders and told the guns to be more aggressive. One of the primary targets that he gave the guns was the attacking German infantry. This had the obvious physical benefit of hitting the Germans while they were in the open, but even more importantly, it let the French see the effects of the artillery, to see that they had the guns behind them. For the first time, the French infantry would be able to believe that when the Germans attacked, they would have some help for an army that's been beaten like a government mule for five days, this morale boost was huge. It's small things like that that add up. The other critical piece of Batan's plan was to get the supply lines sorted out and organized. During this, doing this was the only way that he could hope to feed the men and the guns. He worked over the coming week to bring up enough supplies so that the artillery and infantry would be able to fight for 14 days, in case they were cut off from resupply for any great length of time. These two large efforts were accompanied by an endless stream of other orders and decisions. He designated sectors along the fronts with letters and assigned them to the commanders, allowing for some sort of order to be created out of the mess. He began to move men and guns back into the fortresses and strongholds along the front and made sure that they were incorporated into the unified command structure so there would be no more repeats of Douaumont. Finally, he made sure that the demolition mines were neutralized so they would no longer be needed. While some of these decisions were bold, Patan had a few things going for him that made it all possible. First of all, he had men arriving at Verdun constantly. The 20th Corps was now all committed to the line, and the 1st Corps was moving in behind them. By the 26th, the day after Douaumont, Pétain would have 14.5 divisions under his command, and that would increase to over 20 in the next week. It got to the point very soon where, given the limited geographical area under his command, he had to request to French HQ to stop sending more troops, and instead to give him more heavy artillery. They were more useful. With some of these extra troops, he was able to order the construction of four lines of resistance. The first line would be held only by a few troops, and it was three to 500 meters in front of the second line, which was the primary point of resistance. The third line would be a reserve line, with the fourth line being the last line of resistance, which Batan drew on a map and said there would be absolutely no retreat from. One small administrative change was to give Patan command of the 3rd Army, which was adjacent to the 2nd Army now in the line. This would allow him to simplify support services in the area by combining the supply and transportation assets of both armies. One of those decisions that Patan made, that I just sort of brushed past, was getting supplies to the front. I did not mention all the problems that were present in trying to make that actually happen. And for any continued resistance by the French troops, these were problems that were going to have to be solved, and pretty quickly, because there will be nine French army corps in and around Verdun, and they would have to be supplied. The only way to move these supplies into Verdun was a narrow-gauge railway and a second-class road that both led into the city. The road was one that ran north from the town of bar le about 40 miles to the south. And it would come to be called the Sacred Way, due to how important it was to the French. For most of the battle, the road and the railway were the sole ways of getting supplies into Verdun. Now, before the fighting started, the railway was used to bring in about 400 tons of munitions per day. But the rate of consumption during the fighting would require 10 times that amount. Even with the railway maxed out completely, the road would still have to be used to make up the difference. Supply trucks were brought into bar le in great number, 3,500 in all, and they would begin running up and down the road non-stop. An average of 1,700 trucks would make the 80-mile round trip every single day. On a normal day, that meant a truck every 25 seconds. However, when it was required, traffic would almost double with a truck every 14 seconds. Now, to keep the traffic flowing was a whole thing in and of itself. Patan sent Major Richard, who laid down some very strict rules for the road, all of which were designed with one goal in mind, to keep the traffic flowing, no matter what. Any stalled vehicle was quickly moved to the roadside, and groups of engineers were assigned to keep the trucks running through repairs or removal. The engineers were also supposed to repair the road when necessary, and this was not a huge task early on, when the road was frozen. However, the temperature began to rise, and the ground began to thaw, and the road quickly turned into a muddy quagmire. Major Richard had to requisition the help of territorial troops that were moving to the front, and they were given the task of hurling gravel and stones onto the road in an attempt to create a solid enough road base for the trucks to keep moving. The battle to keep traffic moving would last throughout the entire ten months of the battle, And at the peak of the fighting, there would be 15,000 men, an entire division, dedicated just to road maintenance, because without the road and the ability to keep supplies flowing to Verdun, the battle would be over very quickly. Another part of Patan's plan for Verdun was a constant rotation of troops in and out of the area. This was not a simple matter of rotating troops in and out of the front line but also in and out of the Verdun sector completely. This was a process that began in March and would run throughout the entire battle. patton's goal, instead of leaving troops at the front or at Verdun, until they were unable to offer resistance, he would replace them when they were still coherent fighting units. This was great for patton and the defense of Verdun, because it greatly increased the morale and fighting capabilities of the French troops set there at any given time. But Joffre was not a huge fan. By moving troops in and out of Verdun, it was constantly sapping the strength of so many units that he wanted to use in future attacks. Joffre's frustration would just build and build after March 7th, when Patan requested for a corps, and then later for another corps, and then so on and so forth down the road. Patan also did not want new recruits, fresh from training depots, and he did not want units to go through Verdun more than once. All of these facts meant that the rotations that were done would have far-reaching consequences. The first was that the Germans were constantly facing new and refreshed troops. This made the French seem limitless with their manpower, because they were always attacking against a new set of Frenchmen. It also meant that the German high command were constantly overestimating French casualties, since they believed they had caused enough casualties in each unit for the French to have to move the units out of the line, instead of doing it voluntarily. Finally, on the French side, this created a collective experience in the French army that was more powerful than any other battle for any other army during the war. Over the course of the 10 months of fighting, 125 divisions, fully three quarters of the total number of French soldiers, had all rotated through Verdun. This is part of why Verdun occupies such an important role in French society, just the sheer number of men who experienced the horror of it. While Bataille was busy putting all of these new processes and procedures into place, and getting supplies sorted out, and getting the artillery to do something, one question kept nagging at him. Why were the Germans not attacking on the left bank? Why only on the right? And what would the French do if they started attacking on both sides of the river? Would it reset the French back to the panicky atmosphere of those first few days of fighting? These questions, and many more, will be answered next episode. This is Carl on his motorcycle. Let's ride till we run out of gas! And this is Carl off his motorcycle. wood is very different than teak, people confuse the two. On his motorcycle. Hey! Check out that view! Off his motorcycle. Let's do puzzles in the break room. On. Look at all that open road! Off. Look how long my fingernails are getting. You're better on your bike. Progressive helps keep you on it. Get a quote in as little as three minutes at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.